Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DE200, Contracts and Licenses, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 310, March the 2nd, 1994. Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushduni, and I will be discussing now contracts and licenses. Both are important uh, areas of modern life. Both are areas where we are seeing a great deal of lawlessness. First, with regard to contracts, the validity of contracts is no longer respected and maintained by the courts when they see fit they set aside contracts as does Washington DC on the other hand licenses have become an area of increasing importance to the state so that no matter what you do today, it is likely that you will be licensed. If you're a beautician, a landscape gardener, uh, if you uh, have a cleaning service, you name it. In one sphere after another, licensing is required and examinations before you can be licensed. So that licensing is a powerful means whereby the state controls a great many areas of life and also collects a great deal of money in the form of licenses and renewals. Licenses are now being used also to control areas of public concern in a rather lawless way. For example, we have all kinds of rules about uh, timber cutting, rules about the spotted owl and how its habitat cannot be disturbed, and so on and on. Yet in spite of this, a certain amount of cutting is still legal. Well, what is now being done is that uh, loggers who have been logging for most of their life now must suddenly get a license. We have an example right here and one of the men who comes to our services uh, he must now get a contractor's license to be a logger. Now he is able because I've seen him do it take a tree with a lot of trees around that he doesn't want that tree to hit as it goes down and make it fall right between and delineate within inches where it will fall. That takes a great deal of skill and ability. But the license that is now required of loggers, at least in California, no doubt this will happen elsewhere, is a contractor's license for building houses. Now, what does a logger have to do with building houses? 
It's only a way of eliminating a large number of loggers. The news tonight spoke of a logging town north of here where the regulations are shutting it down. The loggers are not going to be able to go on logging. They cannot get licenses. And the town will be virtually wiped out. And it's been there for generations. The tree cutting has been judicious. It is allowed for second growth. So licensure has become a means of ungodly control over peoples. Well, I'm, just, I'm just thinking that uh, the logic behind the, I don't want to get off on the environment, environmentalist movement, but in regard to trees is that trees get old and die. And if you don't cut them down, they become absolutely useless. They're mm -hmm. not even any good for firewood after they lay on the ground for a while, and they're absolutely no good for timber when they lay on the ground for a while. Uh, the, uh, the licensing thing uh, has uh, had some interesting twists and turns in my area of endeavor in electronics. The federal government tried to licensed citizens band operators and there were so many of them and they were so lawless and it became obvious I mean it just pointed out the absolute futility of the government trying to to uh, regulate them that the government finally after a period of about 20 years totally gave up and now re require no license for the operation of a citizens band transmitter uh, because it was simply unworkable it overloaded their facilities to beyond the breaking point, but they still continue to license amateur radio operators because there's not as many of them, and they can still collect a fairly sizable fee from them. So if the enterprise gets big enough and they can't handle it, they give up on it uh, as far as trying to collect any fees. Uh, broadcast stations commercial broadcast stations at one time, television stations in various markets were being charged $50,000 for a license to, to operate a broadcast transmitter. They went into federal court and sued uh, the U.S. government on the basis that they were charging way beyond the actual cost of issuing the license. And uh, the court ruled in their favor so that... Uh, after that, all license fees were eliminated for a period of about 20 years. Now, recently, they've started back up again uh, in very modest amounts uh, for both broadcast stations and amateur radio licensees. Uh, but uh, that's about probably the last time that we will see that happen, that the courts would rule that the government cannot charge a fee for a license beyond the actual cost of administrating that license for the purpose of simply regulating the activity to comply with rules that, uh, in, a, in essence, uh, traffic rules so that uh, the service stays orderly. Walter Williams, the economist at Mason University, wrote a book a few years back called The State Against Blacks, in which he said that the license laws 
were used for an awfully long time to introduce and to expand Jim Crow, restricting the entry of black workers and entrepreneurs into various areas. And he brought up the taxicab medallion in the metropolitan cities. In New York City, a medallion is worth an incredible amount of money, $100,000 or something like that. And in order to obtain and drive a, a cab with a, a legitimate medallion on it, you have to have that kind of money. So, of course, they have gypsy cabs, which are against the law because they're not licensed. And they are allowed because they pay off the police. There's a shakedown involved, and they have to probably pay off everybody that approaches them. And we could expand this into the whole license thing. License, license they, everybody has to be licensed. You, you hear every so often one of, our, one of the members of our goodness party, which is our largest party, protesting against an unlicensed and unregulated activity, which is described as a great menace to the nation. I've written an article in an old encyclopedia, just dates just after the war, and it was interesting to see the change in law from an encyclopedia. It's just a little bit older than, than I am. It... Um, it said that the traditional meaning of a contract was a bargain or agreement, but that it was beginning to become now only an agreement enforceable by law. So, and now today, oral agreements are virtually worthless in a court of law. It's only something that can be enforced in a court of law. But this ar the article said that traditionally... Uh, the government responsibility to provide for the peace and to ensure personal uh, rights and property rights were, were the only rights superior to the rights of contract and the importance of the contract, and uh, which makes sense because the, the rights of a free people to engage in, in free market activities depend upon their right to engage in, in uh, voluntary agreements. But in their discussion of the, uh, the Constitution's guarantee of uh, that uh, no state could make a law infringing on a uh, private contract, they listed some things that are now have passed by the boards in which the government could not interfere with private contracts. And all these various things have now pretty much passed by the boards. It gave the example that the government could not establish the size of a loaf of bread, for instance, because um, uh, the baker and seller could agree on the size of a loaf of bread, and the government could not do anything to interfere with the rights to, to such an agreement. And after reading all these things, it seems so now so outdated, 40, 45 years later, they said that there was... There was a, a two different views of contracts. One, that it was necessary for freedom in the marketplace, and it was a, bit, it was a matter of freedom. And the second was that it was a matter of protecting uh, weaker individuals versus more powerful individuals, and, and there presumably the government had the right to step in and interfere with the rights of contract. And it shows how far we've gone 
and that the government now considers that we're all weak and that we have to be protected and therefore they must pass laws and regulations to protect us in every area we can't even agree to something uh, something we were talking about the other day is you're limited in your rights to who you hire to do a job if your house needs repair if you, a man doesn't have a contractor's license then he can't agree to do it for a certain amount he can't build a room onto your house for a certain amount he can only work for an hourly wage materials and an hourly wage if he is not a licensed contractor so the government interf- doesn't it's no longer a matter of freedom it's a government of rate uh, uh, it's, a, it's a matter of licensure and regulation so the whole area of contracts is now turned to one of government control rather than an area of freedom well, most young people would probably be surprised today to find that most business transactions were carried on by verbal contract. Yes. It was done on a handshake. They still are. A man's word is his bond. I mean, your your creditworthiness was based on your personal integrity, and that's it. I heard a seminar on a, by an, uh, an attorney at a Christian school convention. <laughs> telling you how to avoid the legal pra- uh, problems with contracts. And he said that many provisions, if they are very, very specific uh, about if you don't do this, then this is null and void. If they are not close to your signature, very often a judge will deem them to be non-binding. How, far, how many inches away? <laughs> <laughs> but even if it's in writing, mm-hmm. or if the print is too small... Or if the contract is too long, longer than the judge deems it necessary, uh, he'll exclude it. How about the something that's new to our society? I guess I, I don't know of any historical precedent for it. Is prenuptial contracts, oh, where uh, assets are uh, are kept apart, mm-hmm. kept separate, uh, that were accumulated prior to the marriage? Very old. Is it? Yeah, almost uh, <clears throat> ancient. Well, uh, Mark, you touched on a key aspect in the whole matter of contracts. Contracts represented the people's lawmaking power. When you had the freedom to make a contract with someone else, without interference from the state. The two of you created a law that would bind each of you. Or if you did it orally, that was law. It meant when contracts were valid between persons and the state did not interfere or feel that it had a right to reassess the contract or judge the validity of it, that a great deal of practical law was in the hands of the people. Well, when you take away the right of contract, all are written from the people, and allow the courts to intervene, then you have destroyed freedom. For example, it was not too long ago that... uh, and it still exists, but uh, it's rapidly disappearing... In a number of professions, there would be a kind of uh, appellate board 
so that if there were a dispute between these particular types of uh, workers or uh, traders, the appeal went to this board. The civil courts had nothing to do with it. It was totally determined very quickly, very efficiently, very effectively by the group itself. That was very important because it, in effect, said here is an area where the state cannot intervene. Well, that was part of the guild rules Mm -hmm. that were set up in the Middle Ages when uh, we had free cities and when the various guilds had certain inalienable rights and they took care of their own disputes and contracts, working conditions and so forth. I think, and I'm not sure because I haven't actually researched the area, but it seems to me that the great demolition of the right of contract in the United States was started when Mr. Roosevelt seized the gold because that invalidated, according to the Supreme Court, all contracts drawn up with payments in gold. The Court of the United States, the Supreme Court, ruled that the president could alter the constitutional currency and that every contract written in gold was no longer valid and was automatically transferred into dollars. Later on, under the same president, we drew up wartime contracts, ten cost-plus contracts on war work, And that was presumably to prevent profiteering. There had been a series of hearings on the profits made by various industries during World War I, and it was labeled retroactively as excessive. So World War II, there was a great attention paid to limiting the profits, wartime profits. As soon as the war was over, now in the course of the war, it was a very interesting war, period because a great many people worked themselves almost to death your father being one of them uh, Doug everyone worked worked their heart out during the war because it was a popular war one of the few popular wars we had after the war a whole bunch of new accountants new young governmental accountants poured into every uh, industry and office that had a contract during the war and renegotiated the terms of the contract retroactively and decided that the 10 plus, the 10% profit was too much, arbitrarily. It was valid, they, they were legally followed and so forth, but it was still too much for them to have. In some cases, I was told, the owners or the proprietors of the business or the managers of the business had already spent much of the money or committed the money to post-wartime purchases so that in order to give the money back, it was a real uh, burden. Well, that, of course, fundamentally destroyed a government which makes contracts with its citizens and then breaks the contract is a dishonorable government. And the demolition of contracts since then has been precipitous 
because now we are going on torts and liabilities irrespective of contracts. Even when a company will have a valid contract saying, uh, we, we give you this under these conditions only, they can be sued and the courts and the juries will find them guilty of some sort of violation. I think the all-time great verbal contract that was broken was read my lips. Well, yeah. that, that cost him the presidency. Yes. Well, there's an important violation of contract in English history which is now forgotten. One rarely finds a mention of it, but it cost the king his head, Charles I. The monarchs of England and some of them were far from being as good as they should have been and uh, at least one debased the coinage but the goldsmiths stored their gold in the Tower of London and the crown did not touch that gold it was not theirs the Tower of London was a royal center it protected the wealth of the goldsmiths and that was held to be a matter of honor Charles I seized that gold and it destroyed his credibility with the people. It led ultimately not only to the Civil War but to his beheading. He violated a contract and yet you can read biographies of Charles I and this fact is never mentioned. Well, he's been made a saint. Of course, you have... It went back to the monarchy, you know. Yes, you have actually a day for... He's he's an Episcopal saint. Yes, you have a day in January, I think the 26th or thereabouts, uh, in which prayers are offered for the blessed King Charles. But also... It pointed to something that was going to be, from there on out, a habit of of governments. Yes, of seizing the assets of the people. So they hardly are going to be prone to uh, calling attention to that as an offense. So that an important part of English history in the 17th century and the life of King Charles I has dropped out of sight. Well, that's true, but the whole question of contracts here in the United States has dropped out of sight. Yes. Contra- uh, nothing that the citizens say, and we have to, I think, expand our definition of a citizen. Citizens who are working together in a commercial enterprise are still citizens. Mm-hmm. They're always referred to as a special interest. Woodrow Wilson used to call them selfish interests, as though though a man wasn't supposed to be interested in his own affairs. Well, it's part of the demonizing process. It's an instrument that liberals use to get what they want. Franklin Roosevelt's violation of contract is not mentioned. That's true. And subsequent presidents uh, countenancing the violation of contracts with the Arab oil states, with oil companies here and in Europe, that's not mentioned. It's taken for granted that that was some kind of act of uh, 
nobility on the part of our government. Well, they pulled the rug out from under the oil companies that had contracts with the oil-producing countries and allowed the oil-producing countries to escalate their taxes, their, their price, and so forth at will. Now, when the English, <coughs> when the English had an empire, if a local authority violated the contract with an English firm, they would send in the gunboats. In fact, they sent battleships down to Venezuela <coughs> under Victoria, and our president ordered them out of the Caribbean, and Victoria painted the map, the map of uh, Venezuela black as because they did retreat on that occasion. <coughs> we never understood that in order to have international respect, we had to back up the sanctity of contracts because we didn't believe in the sanctity of contracts. And, of course, if you don't believe in a contract and keeping a contract, well, then you have, in effect, no honor. Yes, and the violation of the contracts was done in the name of uh, international morality. Yes, being good and, to the Arabs. Yes, and yet... The Arabs, who, when you and I were young, Otto, before oil was developed there, were poor people walking behind their camels, most of them going blind from Tacoma before they were uh, even uh, middle-aged. And the oil companies went in there, they changed the aspect of the country they eliminated diseases that had been there for centuries yes they had to build whole, whole towns and they uh, created hospitals schools a host of things that revolutionized the Arab countries and yet we vindicated those peoples and gave them a justification for ingratitude <coughs> The work of the oil companies the world over in alleviating poverty and eliminating a number of diseases was phenomenal. Very few people, for example, are aware of the fact that the Rockefellers had teams of doctors going to all corners of the world to see what kind of healing they could effect how they could improve the quality of life. But that story is ignored. Well, it's denied. <coughs> we discovered oil, created the oil industry in the United States, changed the world. That discovery changed the world. It energized the world. Mm -hmm. It made the internal combustion engine possible and so forth. I just saw a movie uh, the other night in which the oil companies and the oil refinery were the evil environmental polluters of the pristine Alaskan wilderness. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, the hero of the movie, who was playing Superman in, a, in another guise, gave an impassioned speech about the fact that <coughs> all the corruption of the earth is the result of big business, and an evil government. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think uh, I would agree with someone who disliked a particular oil man. I think the Rockefellers, with their championing of the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, did a lot of harm to Christianity. On the other hand, if you want to look at the facts honestly, you would have to say first that the greatest missionary agency in all of history in not only converting people but bringing health, education, and more to the far corners of the earth have been Christian missions. But after that, you'd have to say it's the oil companies. Not on the same grand level, but in a very limited time. They've done remarkable work the world over, and no one gives them credit for that. Well, our, our great prosperity came from cheap energy. Yes. We got oil here cheaper. The oil companies treated the United States people very well. They kept the price of oil in this country at rock bottom while it was much more expensive in other parts of the world. The countries that didn't have oil didn't share in the third technological revolution. Mm -hmm. And this is what really created much of the third world, is that it didn't have access to the oil which would have enabled it to industrialize sooner. The, we have now moved into another level, another stage on technology where uh, you might say electrification and the new instruments uh, are considered the source of all our technology. But oil is still the basis and probably will be the basis for another couple of hundred years because actually the world is swimming in oil in mm -hmm. lots of undeveloped areas. But the whole story of what industry has meant to civilization and, and to the world today, extending lifespans and so forth, I don't believe is any longer taught. We're taught environmentalism. We're taught that industry pollutes. We're not taught that most pollution is where there is no industry. When I was in grade school in the sixth grade, well, actually the fourth grade, I remember, which was, uh, what, 1928, maybe, or somewhere around there. We had to write compositions or themes, we called them compositions then, on what Harvey Firestone and uh, Edison and other men produced. Well, the activities of our industrialists and inventors were something that we were once very proud of. We used to talk about the fact that the average man, which is a term which is used then, once released from the binds of Europe, proved by his inventiveness and energy and diligence uh, what was possible for the human race. And we were admired around the world for this. Rush mentioned geography in the in the uh, interim here. I think uh, what you were saying, Doug, was very interesting about it. Well, learning geography at a young age was uh, very beneficial. I started out in amateur radio at 12 years old, 
and uh, by the time I got into high school, uh, I had acquired a great deal of uh, uh, familiarity with geography because uh, a lot of amateur radio activity was involved in talking to people in foreign countries. Uh, but something I wanted to ask you, Otto, at uh, regarding the contract uh, thing, now we've just had a, a, I mean everybody assumes that the Constitution is a contract between the people and their government. We've just had a, an example of uh, uh, retroactive tax increases in, uh, in violation of the ex post facto law rule in the Constitution and then Roosevelt apparently uh, created money uh, outlawed gold and forced uh, forced people to take paper money and, and, and had to create money himself by his own act, which was usurping the power of Congress. Was that the the watershed event? Were there any prior instances of uh, ex post facto laws being uh, put through by the executive branch without any uh, conflict with the Supreme Court? Well, the, the amendments to the Constitution that were enacted after the Civil War ended altered the nature of the Constitution. Before the war, certain acts of Congress, certain amendments were laid down and said Congress shall not, or the government shall not, Introduce, uh, interfere, for instance, with the freedom of speech and so forth and so on. After the war, they said the government shall and, and enact a, appropriate legislation. They, they enacted a, a, an area where the government could act via what they called enabling legislation. Now, this changed a government of limitations to a government of operations. And one would say that retroactively, that very lawyerly sort of insertion enabled the government to change the Constitution retroactively without saying anything about it. Who generated this change? The executive branch or Congress? No, Congress did. It was done by the Abolitionist Congress of 1867 and 8 and 9. They call them radical Republicans now because the name Abolitionist is a sacred name in conventional American history and they don't want to have it linked to the terrible, tyrannical acts that the post-Civil War Congress enacted. It was that period that Congress assumed control of the whole government. We are now being told by the newer historians that that was the great era of advance until recent years, and that uh, all the talk about the bad Congress of those years and the bad years of the occupation of the South are myths. Myths? Yes. The occupation was a myth? Well, they don't talk about the occupation. They talk about... The uh, Reconstruction. The, yes. They have a nice word for it. Yes. Liberals can come up with terms that will convince you that stumbling over a skunk was a good experience. Well, I hate to 
tell you that, well, Khrushchev, I'll, I'll, I'll gentrify the Khrushchev's comment about bureaucrats. He said they could make bullets out of feces. <laughs> Did you hear the comment by the alderman in Chicago regarding Rostenkowski? No. He said that uh, we want somebody that can deliver the pork. We don't want a freshman congressman who can't find his rear end with both hands well about arrogance Chicago used to be a synonym for a godless terrible awful city I remember when we were in Rio that the ordinary people used to say oh you're from America and they, they would stop and look at you as though you'd come from the Mars and then they would ask you, have you been to Chicago? <laughs> Chicago had a reputation around the world. Yes, I used to correspond with uh, boys in my days in grade school who were in Africa, in Europe, in Britain. And it was amazing the ideas they had about the United States Everything from Chicago West was an area where people were uh, shooting at each other and killing each other. Of course, the death rate then is lower than uh, anything you can see in any big city now. And also, they assumed that uh, out in California it had to be a lot worse than Chicago because we had wild Indians uh, roaming around uh, scalping people. Yes. Did you encounter that in no, South I America about the wild that. Indians? No, I didn't get much on the Indians. It was mainly Chicago. Uh -huh. The idea was that everyone in Chicago was shooting somebody else. <laughs> well, one of the really uh, tough subjects in uh, grade school in those days was geography. Yes, it was you had to know specifically a great deal about every country in the world. Their uh, natural resources, their productivity, Yes. Their, uh, what they exported and imported. Yes. We, in those days, uh, had to do things like uh, having a blank map of the United States and filling in the name of every state and the state capital. We had to be able to do that with Europe and Asia and Africa. And uh, that was just the beginning. It was amazing how much content there was to geography then. And in recent years, only two countries have had any solid teaching in geometry, the USSR and Canada. Hmm. Well, geography, I think, is uh, was considered uh, many years ago as part of the primary training for going into business. If you were going to deal in international commerce, uh, you certainly had to know what was going on in the world. Well, that's true. Also, as I look back on it, there were certain deficiencies. Uh, we weren't taught much in uh, ethnic and racial terms. Mm -hmm. 
which I see now as a deficiency. Uh, I was talking to somebody recently about Mexico. Uh, yes, a, a, a friend of mine who has a foster child who is Mexican of origin, who is running into inexplicable to her reactions to what she considers average behavior and instruction. And I said, well, you have to remember that 90% of the population of Mexico is Indian, and not only Indian, but from a different tribe. And the tribes are not the same. You just recently been seeing in the paper about Chiapa Indians who have had their own language all these centuries, who do not speak Spanish, and who do not get along with the uh, rest of Mexico. Now, the Spaniards discovered from, from the Cortez onward that some of the Indians were very docile and some of them were very fierce, and there was a, many variations in between. So here we have a country that's right next door to us with dozens of different languages and peoples of whom we lump them all together as just, just Mexican. So no wonder we can't understand South Africa with its 13 different nations, or 15, however you want to count it. Or, for that matter, the literally thousands of different languages in the continent of Africa. And I think in this inability to realize the diversity of the world diverts us from reality. Yes. I think it's been a major problem as you said, in understanding some of these countries and why very foolish uh, solutions are found by the international community. The attempt by uh, the UN and other groups to force a solution on South Africa, which is totally irrational and unrealistic, is an example of that. And you can take every African state and call attention to the irrationality that puts hostile peoples together and creates a situation of tyranny. Well, the Americans are particularly prone to this because we are composed of many different peoples from different parts of the universe. What we forget is that up until recently, these people were not brought in as a group. They, were, they came individually, and they came voluntarily. Now, there's a lot of difference between a voluntary immigrant from another part of the world and whole groups of people who have been forced into juxtaposition with another group. Well, the, the idea that has prevailed since World War II is that these third world countries should be given their independence in terms of certain ideas that come out of the world of Rousseau and the social contract theory. And this totally overlooks the tribal characteristic of these peoples so that you have a group of educated peoples, for example, in Africa, sitting up at the top, who have no relationship to the life of the diverse peoples under them, and they can only rule them by tyranny, because 
nothing else will hold these people together. And uh, the social contract is an artificial contract. It is a contract imagined by rationalists, scholars, philosophers, that has no relationship to reality. And the modern state is a kind of artificial contract. Yes, it is. It's a construct. Yes. More than a contract. It's a construct. And there is here a denial of the differences between people. Uh, I was, my dad taught me to, a knowledge of the differences is crucial. Now, we have different names because we're different persons. And we can't, otherwise we might as well all call ourselves John Smith. And we're not all alike. And some of our uh, attitudes are inherently different. Not necessarily a matter of education. Or, for that matter, environment. That's evident on government forms. They never give you enough space to put in your full name yet they demand your full name <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's part of to that's torture you know, we run into that all the time there is another very important aspect to the subject of contracts and that's constitutionalism mm -hmm. a constitution is a contract yes in the United States it's a contract between the states even though since 1860 we don't like to talk about that because we've, in effect, been in process of abolishing the state. Mm -hmm. Now, constitutionalism the world over is virtually dead today. It's a dead letter. And it's because constitutionalism presupposes a faith that says a man's word has to be his bond. Mm. It presupposes a biblical concept. It presupposes a governing law. Now, if you do not believe there is a law above and over all men and nations, then you're going to treat any law that is subordinate to that and which is a, a governing factor over a people as really a trifling matter. The Constitution of the U.S. requires an oath of office. Now at that time, an oath was a very fearful fact. And the oath of office required of the President and all subordinate officials invoked all the judgments of God's law as set forth in Deuteronomy 28 for faithlessness. So that to take an oath and not to keep it was to invoke a fearful judgment upon yourself. And those people believed in the God of the Bible. Well, when you don't have that faith in the people at large, you've abolished the Bible from the state schools. How can you expect constitutionalism to survive? Because... If there be no higher law, there can be no subordinate law. Well, if there's, <clears throat> if there's no sense of honor, there's no word. 
And incidentally, business still operates on on verbal contracts. I mean, you have a verbal contract with your lawyer when you hire him. When you buy a carload of oil, you do a verbal contract over the phone. And uh, when you come to an agreement with somebody else, and I've, I've had contracts with corporations in which I come to an agreement with them conversationally, and then the lawyer draws it up in terms that neither one of us can read, but we don't really pay much attention to that. We pay most attention to the agreement that we have privately made. Incidentally, there is a very important forthcoming book, I believe to be published by the University of North Carolina Press. A very good friend and a Chalcedon supporter, Judy Ishkanian. I think she wrote a review of one of my books once. Very yes. nice, very nice review. I yes, she did. It. Yes. You've got a good memory. That was... Uh, Almost 20 years ago, I believe. Oh, I've forgotten how long ago, but I remember the name, yes. Yes. She's a professor of history. Mm. Uh, and uh, She was a student then, I think. That's right. Yeah. Well, I have a tricky memory. <laughs> I remember well, trivia, mostly. Well, her book on honor is... Uh, is that what she's going to write on? Yes, on honor in uh, certain areas of the South. The concept of it, its impact on society. Interesting. Yes. Yes. And that's unusual because... uh, It's a subject that's always intrigued me. And it's a subject that's almost totally neglected in our time. Well, you can see why. Yes. You can see the results of its Mm -hmm. neglect. Honor was a form of personal contract. Yes. Honor doesn't yes. seem to survive in diverse cultures because honor seems to uh, well up within a homogeneous group. You know, the Japanese are very honor-bound. There's a difference of the concept between each group. The Japanese idea of honor is not ours. Well, in this country, until, of course, urban redevelopment destroyed the uh, nationalistic communities in cities, you had a strongly uh, developed concept of honor, say, in the Italian community, in the Irish community, in the German, and so on, so that each area of the city had an integrity. But it was almost all Christian. Yes, and, and a very strong one. Yes. Well, I think one of the efforts after World War II was to destroy the integrity of these units, to homogenize everything. Well, when the government abandoned honor, then, of course, the people began to see that it did them no good. You cannot today go into an American court and rely upon its honor. It's not even treated as, as existing. We have, uh, we have the American version of law now is down to rules. Attorneys now take classes in 
conflict resolution. In other words, they go in there to uh, with a disputed contract and they negotiate their way out of it. The law doesn't mean anything anymore as far as they're concerned. It's, you know, how do you get these two parties together and get out the door? Well, what can you say about the prosecutors in Waco who charged men with murder who were not present at the scene? Yes. What can we say about such men? And such a jury. Yes. I mean, a grand jury had to indict them. If a man is a hundred miles away from the scene of the of the event, and you charge him with it, what can we say? Well, well it's this uh, this is all, you know, the recent uh, uh, collapse of the. Uh, Soviet Union, with all its diversity of cultures and diversity of language, uh, and they have probably written more constitutions than any other government in history, you know, they've shown that it just doesn't work big time. There, I have a, a book at home, which I haven't looked at yet, called The Inter-Ethnic Disputes in Russia. Now, ethnicity, which was just a few years ago considered outmoded, has suddenly re-arisen. I mean, there are large areas of the former Soviet Union that didn't even have the slightest idea what was going on in Moscow. They were not, they may have had a delegate in the, uh, at these constitutional conventions that they held, but they didn't have any idea what was going on. Well, we don't really know a great deal. I recall reading some years ago, speaking of the Soviet Union, that planes would fly over the Siberian forests regularly trying to find a trace of smoke because old believers fleeing persecution had settled there in isolated places, a cabin here and maybe five miles away, another cabin, doing everything they could to conceal their existence from the air as well as from the ground. And this was the tenacity with which they were holding on to their faith and their old ways, which went back to before Peter the Great. Now, the intellectuals find it very difficult to believe that people can have that tenacity about what they believe. They assume it is ignorance and that all that is needed is to... Uh, bring them up to the modern age with education and all this will disappear, but it hasn't. And I believe that with the difficulties we are beginning to experience, the worldwide collapse of the humanistic statist order, the economic collapse, that people are going to go back to their roots, 
that all these old beliefs and loyalties are going to reassert themselves. And I think the results will be startling 30 and 40 years down the road. I think there's a lot to that. Our time is almost up. Is there a last statement that any of you have to make on the subject? Well, I don't think that people can last very long cut off from their roots, uh, as our government has methodically tried to do, and like the communists in Russia tried to do. People cannot remain rudderless indefinitely. They have to have something to believe in, and the belief systems that have been handed to them by the uh, the state uh, don't hold up. And young people are beginning to see this in universities and colleges across the country. They are beginning to question the uh, the prevailing liberal point of view uh, because you're seeing a lot of uh, conservative clubs beginning to pop up on various campuses and universities. And uh, I think there's a movement, uh, a groundswell moving in that direction. I think the most difficult thing to endure is instability. We have a very unstable society. The value of our money fluctuates every day, hourly practically, and that makes uh, for an unstable economy. And I think the human spirit requires stability and security. If we do not have either of those things, well then you have a a transitory society. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.